A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps to detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talk to Stephen Bush and George Eaton about Trident Renewal and the People's PMQs. Then Stephen joins us again, plus Barbara Speed, to talk about his dark materials and what our demons would be. The issue of Trident, the UK's nuclear deterrent, has come back onto the agenda with a potential split between Jeremy Corbyn, who is very anti-nuclear, and his party, who are pro for very different reasons. Um, I'm going to talk to Stephen, our Staggers editor, and George, our politics editor, who have both written about this for the magazine this week. George, I'm going to start with you. Corbyn has been a lifelong unilateralist, and although he's made compromises on things like um, NATO membership, there's no sign that this is something that he he will compromise on, is there? Absolutely. So he feels that he has a mandate from the members for this position. He's never disguised his support for unilateral disarmament. But of course, that puts him at odds with uh, a lot of Labour MPs and with uh, significantly most of his shadow cabinet. So I think apart from Corbyn, there are only four other confirmed unilateralists in the shadow cabinet. And crucially, the vote on renewal is going to be held by next March at the latest. And so uh, Labour's currently carrying out a, a defence review led by uh, the Shadow Defence Secretary Maria Eagle, who's a Trident supporter, but has said the review will be completely open. It will examine Trident on the basis of facts and figures. So that was an attempt by Corbyn to uh, neutralise the issue for now, to kick it into the long grass. But Labour will have to vote uh, on renewal. And uh, the question is, is, what will it do? And most Shadow Cabinet members expect Corbyn to ultimately offer a free vote as Odd as that may seem, uh, when it's uh, an issue which of, of national security, which parties normally have to take a, a united position on, it's the only way they think that Corbyn can vote against Trident renewal while most of his shadow cabinet vote in favour of it. So there's that great quote in the piece from Michael Duggar, who's now the shadow culture secretary, saying it's the you know the first time a Labour leader will offer a free vote so he can vote against party policy. Um, Stephen, you've also you went into some of the punishingly wonkish detail about conference and its role in this. So one of the things that Jeremy Corbyn has been quite keen on is using conference and using grassroots memberships where he has a huge mandate to kind of say to the PLP, well, look, this is what the membership want. The trouble is that's not going to work in this case, is it? Can you tell us why not? So basically at the last conference, uh, the conference had two opportunities to vote on Trident. One as a uh, submitted motion by a a branch, a local branch, which was voted down by both constituency delegates and trade union delegates, and then 
the section Britain and the World, which was then voted through by conference, includes a paragraph about maintaining the nuclear deterrent. Now, under the letter of Labour's rulebook, you can't then bring it back for two years, and that's two full conferences. So you can't say have a, a special. You can't you can't kick that forward in any way. Have a special conference like the one that uh, the leadership election. Yeah, you, you yeah you've you've got to have the full the full thing. The difficulty is though, is that. Um, most people, I think, would uh, accept, and definitely privately a lot of people who are pro the deterrent concede this, then they might have won it by the spirit of the rule, the letter of the rules. But in spirit, delegates did not know when they voted through Britain and the world that they were reconfirming Trident. They thought they were voting through some warm words about, about you know, the EU, NATO, love, truthiness, all of that. So the rules are on Corbyn's opponent's side, but I, I, I think, you know, I think in most courts, a judge would go, well, no, yeah, actually. But the role of the trade unions is quite interesting, isn't it, George? Because they are primarily concerned with this from a jobs point of view. So, um, the, you know, there are potentially more than a thousand jobs at risk if, if, if Trident moves out. So is that going to be a, a, a problem for people like Unite, for example? Absolutely. I mean, they, Unite, the largest, the UK's largest trade union represents thousands of defence workers. And Jeremy Corbyn has emphasised several times now that everyone who would lose their jobs through scrapping Trident would be found alternative employment and that not a penny, he said, that would be saved from disarmament should be spent until we've used it to invest in, in, in jobs. The problem, as uh, as one trade unionist I speak to in, um, in Barrow in the piece says, is that... Um, they don't regard these uh, claims of diversification as credible. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, you know, we commissioned a report in the 1980s um, called Oceans of Work, looking at whether there would be alternative employment for those who, who build the uh, Trident submarines were the, were the project not to go ahead. And the employers simply told us, um, you know, we'd be, we'd be better off putting the money in the, in the Barrow Building Society because we'd get a better rate of return. And they say, if... Um, Trident renewal doesn't go ahead, there will be no manufacturing in Barrow and 8,000 jobs will go. I think, yeah, which I think is is an interesting point. But also the other one that I think is that there has to be some answer to is is the thing that Diane Abbott said to you, I think, Stephen, which is that, you know, Trident can't be used without the approval of the Americans. It does nothing to combat cyber threats, which we know are an increasingly big worry for national security or jihadists. Um, And actually, you know, have we got the capacity to to use it? I mean, I think that's one the one thing, surely, the lesson we've learned from Syria is that these deterrents are of no use unless people feel that you would actually use them um is there a is there a kind of even a, a quite a hawkish argument against trident specifically trident even if not the idea generally so there's the the argument that you're better off spending it on conventional forces um from a from a wonkish perspective i don't think that that stacks up because trident is basically a virility symbol. Um, whether or not you think it's an effective virility symbol is, is actually the policy question. You can't replace the um, the kind of phallic symbolism of having a big old nuke mm. with anything else. So the argument is purely whether or not you think it works as a symbol, which is a much more open question. I mean, the, the reason why it's so fraught is it, it, it hits across so many different Labour divides, not least because Unite and the GMB, another big affiliate unions, compete for members... Um, in, in, among defence staff. Among defence staff. So, yeah. so, and, and the GMB is much more hawkish about it, partly because that is a, because one thing is we all kind of absorb the way the right wing press describes them as barons. And of course, these are two competing politicians at the head of effectively two competing businesses. And so it's in the GMB's interest to go, 
you know, look, we are more hawkish than Unite. Mm. But Unite believe that it is also in their interest to compete as the most left-wing big union. And so you have a lot of different uh, pressures there. And it is, as Diane also said to me, it's, it's totemic. It's a cultural issue within the Labour Party, um, far more than it's one of defence. It is just something that people are opposed or for in their bones. And that kind of comes back to some of the 80s stuff, isn't it, where it's felt that some of the reason that Labour weren't treated credibly in the 80s was because they weren't playing in the big boys game because they didn't have the you know the backing for the kind of big boy symbol right yeah and the the poster from the 1987 election which kind of lives on for a generation of labor politicians and activists um on what we might call the soft left or the center of the party is a photo of a soldier with his hands in the air Labour's defence policy is the slogan. And Neil Kinnock gave an interview to the Press Association this week and he said, look, we just have to live with the reality that you can't win an election uh, if you are uh, anti-Trident or Polaris or whatever it's been called through history. Um, and I want to just wrap up finally, by George, by asking you about Prime Minister's questions because Jeremy Corbyn, who's been trying his sort of people's Prime Minister's questions, uh, eased up a bit on that this week. Was it successful? Uh, this week's PMQs was was quite scrappy. Neither neither Cameron nor nor Corbyn clearly came out on, on top. And then, unlike the previous week when uh, Corbyn uh, devoted all six of his questions to tax credit cuts, and and Cameron um, uh, sort of avoided them all um, to to the awkwardness um, um, of of some of his MPs. But uh, I mean, this week he is still um, throwing in the odd uh, the odd uh, people's questions. He had one from a, a Gulf War veteran this week, and, and was pointing out that. Um, a private in the army would lose £2,000 uh, next April from tax credit cuts. But just to link it back to defence, Cameron had quite a, a, a neat riposte when he said, well, you've said in the past that uh, you can't conceive of any circumstances in which the armed forces would be deployed. Serving soldiers wouldn't have jobs if you were, if you were Labour leader. Uh, now I'm sure Jeremy Corbyn would have a, would have a response to that, but um, it's quite a neat riposte that's um, at PMQs. But... What was interesting this week was that Cameron at the start was very careful not to attack Jeremy Corbyn. He didn't want to be seen to ridicule him. He wanted to cast himself as the, the father of the nation, treating the new leader of the opposition with, with respect. That changed this week. And um, he said in response to a question on the NHS, I don't think the NHS is going to have a winter crisis. Labour's heading for a winter crisis. said your media advisors are Stalinist. Your policy advisors are Trotskyist. Um, your economics advisor is is a... Uh, is a is a communist and um some may see that as a sign of weakness but um a sign that Cameron's rattled but it's perhaps more likely reflective of his confidence he thinks he can now safely after seeing Jeremy Corbyn's um rather low personal ratings thinks he can get away with attacking him but, isn't um, it isn't it also that before and the reason why and there are lots of reasons in my view why it was a mistake to go back to the old PMQs but it's very difficult for a prime minister to attack Rosie Jim, the yeah. Riveter from Walthamstow. Yeah, that just makes you look like an awful person. Whereas everyone dislikes, pol you know, most people dislike all politicians pretty much equally. The evidence from the polls is that they dislike Cameron, but they dislike uh, Jeremy Corbyn even more. And also, he has got 32 years of uh, articles for the Morning Star panels. I mean, the number of stupid things I said last week. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, like. Yeah, none it, of us can ever go into politics. Yeah, I mean, that's like. He, yeah, he's it was given. just a, it, I, I think, and also he's given up the tactical win of being able to say this awful thing that most people hate about politics, Prime Minister's questions. He was on course to change it, and in order to get a few good write-ups in the bubble, he's going to allow Cameron to play Red Scare 
every week. It's just, it's lunacy. So you think he should go back to the people's PMQs? Yeah, people hate, people hate PMQs. Um, no government has ever been defeated by a, a good PMQs. It fails to me the iron test of whether or not it's useful. Just, has anyone ever had to resign following PMQs? Well, does it get covered on Magic FM? And does it get covered on Magic FM? Um, whereas, actually, Corbyn be able to say this awful thing, this shouting match. Do you remember five years ago when it was all the... And the... Rah, rah, rah. Mm. Well, thanks to me, Jeremy Corbyn, it's over. That that was a big win, and he was already he was embarrassing to the Tories, and he'd stand up and go, "I have a question from Kelly, who's about to lose." Well, they were beginning to sort yeah. of snigger slightly, weren't they? Yeah. George? They were beginning to kind of, and it was beginning to become quite awkward that you're sort of you're essentially deriding a nurse on you know twenty thousand pounds a year. I thought that what what do you think, George? Do you think that they should he should go back to the people's PMQs? I don't think it was sustainable for him to use every question from from the public simply because you're passing out political opportunities now. Stephen's quite right that um, a win in the bubble doesn't uh, get you very far in terms of in terms of public opinion. But it is important in terms of managing your party and party morale. And I think had Corbyn persisted with uh, people's uh, PMQs, he would have found it a lot harder, even harder, to manage his MPs. I sort of think, though, he was supposed to be getting thousands and thousands of emails every week. Presumably he could have found one that was about, oh, and here, funnily enough, Mrs. Higginbotham has, has come in with us. A, a great point on Trident. I'm, sh- you know, I, t- I wonder if he could have, maybe he, w- maybe, maybe like most things, people were quite excited about the start and then people stopped emailing or only people emailing about how they think the world's run by lizards. And he was going to kind of go, Mr. Cameron, I put it to you that jet fuel can't melt steel beams but by 2017. 16, um, MPs who genuinely back him and, and about 50 more who are kind of firmly in the kind of, um, make it work, we've got to do our best to make a goer of this tendency. If they're good constituency MPs, you can drum up six good questions every week. I think also, what what worked was it put Cameron in the loser's corner? I mean, it won't be good for morale if he gets destroyed on being soft on terror every week. Mm. Um, yeah. It's a, I, yeah, I, I think it's a tough one because I, I have long hated PMQs as being fully yarboo. And then John Rental suggests, but would you rather watch that or a select committee meeting? And I had to grudgingly concede that. I Not least because PMQs is only half an hour long, whereas select committee meetings can drone on for hours and hours and hours. There is a place for kind of forensic, you know, uh, examination of the evidence. And there is probably also a bit of a place for, for shouting, much though it pains me to say so. Um, on which note, I'll say thank you to George and Stephen. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The BBC has recently announced that it will be turning Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy into BBC series. I'm joined by Stephen Bush, our Staggers editor, and Barbara Speed, our technology writer, to chew over this exciting bit of news. Well, I say it's exciting because I am excited about it because I really love these books. But this does take place in the shadow of the abomination that is The Golden Compass, which was Hollywood's attempt at making a film out of it, which featured Nicole Kidman giving it 
full sort of borderline Cruella de Vil, I, I would don't say. think she was the worst bit of casting actually yeah she was quite fun yeah, yeah. Uh, she at least she, she camped it up a bit, she, but she did at least look the part mm. it, where uh, I kind of whereas I think for my money Daniel Craig uh, or uh, was it? It wasn't Dakota Fanning. It was Dakota Blue Richards. Are you saying that all child actresses look the same? Yep. Nondescript, frizzy hair, white acting skills of cardboard. Um, that also describes all of the Harry Potter cast in the first film as well. But in the yeah, first how one, they ended up. They're, yeah, I mean, one they don't really improve, but at least they're kind of cute. That is the thing about the first Harry Potter movie. You look at them and you're like, oh, you want to rub in your little hair, Daniel? Whereas. Yeah. Yeah, um, but Daniel Craig, who, you know, has lots of strengths as an actor in other things, but is not posh enough to be Lord Azrael. Like, it was just disastrous casting. It, he he didn't seem to enjoy it, and everything about it was, was bad. It could be summed up with that awful moment with um, Yorick Bernson, the, the, where he kind of shouted in his Ian McKellen voice, I'm an armoured bear. And I remember everyone in the cinema just started laughing. <laughs> it was just, oh, it was so bad. It was a disaster. Was it actually Ian McKellen? Yeah, it was Ian McKellen was was the iron. I'm acting, I'm acting. You shall not pass! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, That's what what worries me. And Barbara, the other big worry is the budget. And I mean, you know, um, so they're crunching down all three books apparently into eight episodes, which means they're going to have to... uh, They never got to make a a Hollywood film of the third book. I'm going to get this right, Mm. The Amber Spyglass. Which has got the weird creatures that I never really understood that don't have a spine. They've got like a diamond-shaped thing. And they roll on... They claws. put their claws through a seed pod, and then they, or which they oil, and then they roll along because they've evolved on a, a road that's got like ribbons of, of, of sort of, I don't know what it is. I'm gonna say ribbons of asphalt naturally into ribbons of something anyway. So that's how they've evolved. That always struck me that I had no idea how those things worked, and trying to do them on the BBC budget, I'm worried that there might be a sort of disgruntled-looking cow. Oh, yeah, <laughs> rolling too. along on a on a coconut. Um, no, I think though that the the biggest counter to that is probably just how successful the national. I think it was the National Theatre's production of the books was com- in comparison to this Hollywood film, which had about I have no idea, but a lot more budget mm. than the plays would have done because they did everything slightly less hyper realistically and more abstractly. So the demons were done with kind of these puppets that were very kind of floaty and silky, and I'm not. That might not work on a TV series, I guess. But I think you can do a lot more with sort of suggestion and kind of... I'm not sure that really hyper-real CGI is even that good anyway for this type of kind of quite magical fantasy story. I think there's a real backlash against that hyper-real CGI because it looks so weightless. It just doesn't look Yeah, and, that, and that's a good word for the film, I think, that it was quite substanceless and you actually lost a lot of the character. And maybe because, for example, they did cast someone who was quite a young girl as the lead, she didn't have much to her. Whereas, if, for example, in the play, I think they cast someone who was in her late teens at least, and she then covered it through the as the books went on. But I think you're safer doing that and having someone who knows what they're doing, even if they don't look. It was a bad couple is. of years because that's I think not long before that they ruined my other favourite children's book, The Dark Is Rising trilogy, by casting um, Christopher Eccleston as a, like the head of a family of Americans, and it made me much more grateful when I went around Harry Potter World recently that J.K. Rowling put her foot down and did mm. not let them cast all. They wanted like one American basically to make it relatable than Harry Potter. Um, Stephen, I've got a bigger question, which is if you had a demon, what would it be? Well, I, I think I'd probably have a cat demon, you know, kind of... And Barbara's shaking her head at me. 
I don't kind of I, I just, relaxed... Okay, I'm going to put this out there. Your desk is not the desk of a <laughs> of person a with a cat demon. No, no self-respecting cat. Cats are cat. big groomers. Yeah, would, would have that man of sort of bits of croissant and like, stacks of paper and old I biographies of that, Tony Blair. I maintain that you would have a dog. That is my personal take. Well, I'm Stephen Bush I'm, demon hot take. But quite an intelligent right dog, like a, like a collie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And quite a not like of... a small yappy type dog. Mm. Yeah. A friendly dog. A large, but maybe like a rescue dog, kind of one of those dogs. A dog that people, you know, felt confident in. No, no, okay. Barbara's saying no. What, what, what? So, what type of dog do you think I would have? Oh, I, I don't know. I think just a, I just think a rescue dog. No, I mean like would one you... that does rescues, not one oh, that's being rescued. Some kind of traumatized. No, like a Saint Bernard with like a little barrel. Yeah, of, what of, must of happen rum. to your soul for your demon to be a rescue oh, dog? That's really that's, sad. That's but then, it, but this does come to the point. I I am desperate for somebody to explain to me which is one is the range of animals that actually actually because mm. so we had this conversation in the office before there's a story in the book about a, a sailor who ends up with a dolphin demon and that means that he can no longer go back on land again that's his personality his personality is to be always at sea and I've always thought well hang on a minute what about all the people who get like a I don't know like a sea anemone demon or a wasp demon or well I mean the, the thing is is okay the, uh, the the sailor who can never go ashore is told to Lyra by one of the Egyptians. I was about to explain what Egyptian was, and I suddenly remembered any listeners who don't know what we're talking about have switched off. <laughs> Bailed out. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, is told to her by one of the Egyptians. So, and she's a child at that point in the book. I always kind of assumed it was a an old wives' tale. It's, a, yeah. it's something because. There's always a sense that the demon is appropriate to you. It's not going to yeah. mess up your life because it's you chosen by you in quite a subconscious way. I mean, way, that'd be the thing. Like, think about anything yeah. over the size of a dog begins to get kind of prohibitively, you can't go into into nooks. Is it no. not sort of implied that demons, you know, if, if say you have a, you know, a, not a cat as I've... Yeah, so, you know, my St. Bernard would probably just be St. Bernard's size. But if, if I had, say, a bird... Which I'm not going to claim that I have a bird demon, but if you know, I think you probably would be slightly larger if it was, say, a, a small hawk. It would be quite a large hawk, but if it was a big eagle, it would be slightly smaller. What I'm more interested in is meeting etiquette, right? Mm-hmm. So, obviously, in a lot of meetings, I drift off. Not really, listening employers. Um, in other, in a lot of conversations, in a lot of conversations. Yeah. Yeah. to be fair, right. but. But mostly I'm good at appearing to be You're listening. a bit like when Homer Simpson does jury duty and he's got yeah. glasses with open eyes. What, There's a certain glazed look that you get where you can tell that you've gone somewhere, but you're, uh, you're, you're functioning. Whereas like, this dog Steven... demon would be pacing up and down, its well, no, tail wagging. The cat demon would be licking its ass. And then what would like... it do while you were on your phone is the biggest question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, would the St. Bernard also have Twitter? Okay, so we can't character assassinating someone else. What demon would Bob <laughs> well, you Surely you would, you, would need, you would need a demon with opposable thumbs. That's why I, this is my theory, Ooh. but actually when I maybe I would... Yeah. Actually, what can want they do? a lemur or something like that would be quite a useful demon because then it could go and like mm. open things, fetch you beer, or rescue you. I mean, if you had a monkey demon, it could feasibly pull you out of sticky situations. But if you had a wasp demon, I don't think it could because um, when uh, when Pantalimon tries to force Lyra to not go oh somewhere in the first book and he digs in, he ultimately loses. But if he were rescuing her and he- trying to help her. No, that yeah, that's work. the thing. If you'd locked your keys no, in salt... your flat, you could put your very small monkey demon through the letterbox. It could then mm. go and fetch the key and post it back to you. Whereas, you know, good luck with Dolphin. your ant demon <laughs> <laughs> helping you out on that, with that one. No, I don't think that, work, that works for because I think ultimately, the, the, you know, the point is the soul can't save the body. Mm. They are. They are. Mm. Okay, yeah. So, Barbara, what, what's, what, what, what demon? What demon would you have? 
I would have a tortoise demon. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Wait, someone would turn it into an ashtray. I would probably have to carry it around sometimes because it would be But it would, what about when it hibernated? Uh, I don't know if it would. I don't think they have normal mm. animal functions. Yeah, they don't need to be fed. Um, um, well, so I think my soul's probably asleep half the time anyway. So <laughs> that's really sad. <laughs> um, who would be your dream casting for this BBC uh, adaptation? I always thought Jeremy Irons would make a good Lord Asriel. He would, wouldn't but he? But he's a bit too... He's not kind of muscular enough. What about Charles Dance? He no. gave it good veterinary. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by his veterinary I, in the Pratchett adaptation. I think Azrael, he's, you know, he's an explorer. He's got to... I always see him as a Jason Isaacs. Do I mean Jason Isaacs? The one who's the, the baddie in the live-action Peter Pan, oh. who also plays Lucius Malfoy and is... Uh, oh, okay. Lucius... Yeah, he could... Yeah, because that's slick Maybe even in the same wig. And mm. the Jackson Brody film, uh, yeah. TV shows, that... That guy, he's quite posh. He's very rugged. You can, you believe yeah. he could take you on in a fight, and that was Ben Fogel. That's who you are. Yeah, but, yeah, but he's a guy. He's a Ben Fogel. Yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a, a posh bloke who's seen things, and he's he's gone a little bit strange. Um, and he, yeah, he's kind of like one of those Arctic explorers who, yeah, it's like why is he going it because it's there, and obviously then uh, acquires as the books goes on. Yeah, but you have to believe him as someone who could be the general of a of an army to spoiler alert kill God. Um, and yeah, I don't it's think ruined that... it all. It's just all ruined. But yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And I think Mrs. Coulter's a difficult part to cast as well because you can be tempted to go too icy, sort of not like sex pop, but you know what I mean, kind of slightly sadomasochistic, chilly woman. I think that mm. that can you can ham that up a bit too much. I think. She's got to be someone that actually gets people to do what she wants. So she can't be a kind of like Lady Mandelson, basically kind of giving it full creature of the night. She does actually uh, love both Lyra and Azrael. As, as you see when she interacts with um, What's-His-Face, the uh, What's-His-Trousers, the one she poisons in the second book. No, no, no. Uh, Lord Boreal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What about Lady Mary from Downton? Could she be Mrs. Coulter? Because she's sort of icy yet has feelings. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I can, I can, I can kind of see that. And I that think, sort of, yeah, I guess the trouble is with Lyra and Will, you sort of presume that they will end up casting unknown actors in mm. them, which can very much go either way. You can end up. Yeah. The trouble is, I always feel with child actors that you can end up going somebody who is a bit too stage school, and they just give it yeah. a bit sort of like, and now well, we I must think, go away. I think they can get away with having someone who's just twenty now, and I think they probably should. I think the dream casting for Lyra would be Maisie Williams. Ooh, just to throw that in there. Oh uh, yeah. And yeah. she, because she looks younger than her age as well, doesn't she? And she has, but she's been really good in, in Doctor Who. And she's also got that intelligent, I mean, that her, the way that she plays her character mm. in Arya in um, Game of Thrones is quite liarish, isn't it? It's just somebody who lies all the time, who tells stories, who is kind of untrustworthy, and which is what you want for that character. They also have the advantage that because it's just eight episodes, they don't have to do that thing with films where you have to, where child actors are like this weird investment where you have to hope and they're... Voices don't change, and, and they, they don't, don't get really ugly. Drop, just give them different um, and so they can cast someone who's actually slightly too old for the role. Who and I, I think, and film be, it all in a year. Yeah, and film yeah. It in a year. Okay, well that's good. We sorted out. BBC, get on the phone. Thank you, uh, everyone, um, from all of us. Goodbye. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.